I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning, and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. I am your host, Pete Neal, and today we have a guest on board. My friend, Martin Lambert. Martin, how are you? Bonjour, bonjour. How are we doing? You all right? I'm good, thanks, mate. Thanks for popping on for us. That's no problem at all. So me and Mark have known each other for many, many years now. I can't, I can't remember how long we've actually known each other. Um, drunk drunken somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> many a drunken night. Um but we both met each other on the World War One circuit, uh, both doing living history, joining uh, portraying soldiers of the First World War. Um, but also, Mark is now on TikTok uh, with uh, was it over thirty five thousand followers on TikTok now, and also he's a battlefield tour guide. So we're going to delve into Mark's life as a living historian and about his battlefield guiding so mark where did it all start for you oh crikey uh, i mean back in the sands of time many many moons ago um as all good stories started i started um, delving through my dad's shed and uh I was about, five, oh, about six or seven years old found a uh, a bayonet which was my my grandfather's from the first world war uh, my dad's dad and then I sort of came brandishing this bayonet out of a out of a shed somewhere, and my my granddad started telling me about his 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 war service, and I was hooked. So, a very young age, interest in the first first and second world war. Um, I ended up getting taken over to the battlefield of the Somme when I was about eight or nine years old, finding my first smelly, um, not too far away from Beaumont Hamel, 
and I was hooked, absolutely hooked. Loved loved history. Used to you know play soldiers like we we all did, and then about fourteen when I was about fourteen, helping at a local museum, the Royal Gunpowder Mills, Wolf Mabby. Um, there was a group of uh, group of reenactors there from the Great War Society, and jokingly, I said, "Oh, how do you get into this sort of thing?" And yeah, here we are, nearly sort of just over twenty years later, back in um, you know back in the sands of times, and it's it's led me to here, there, everywhere, from the most wonderful, you know, wonderful places to the most weird and peculiar places. It's um, it's a lifestyle, uh, a friendship group, and off the back of it, it's led to basically my hobby becoming part of a career in every different strand you possibly can um yeah i can't say more than that really yeah it's uh it's most certainly a very uh unique community <laughs> that we all belong to and it, and it does open many doors for us as well um so what group was that that you actually saw at the uh gunpowder mills all those years ago so yes, that's uh, that's the Great War Society. Um, the main group I've um, I've sort of stuck stuck with over the years. I mean, I've I've sort of flitted. I mean, I've been with you know, obviously your chaps and the rifles as well. Um, the highlight of that being sort of 2017 when uh, me and you were parading for the King and Queen of, uh, of Belgium. Um, you can't you can't get better than that. But Great War Society um, have been with them for for donkey's years. Fourth Battalion, Middlesex Regiment, D Company. Um, one of the first units at uh, at Mons in nineteen fourteen. It's um, you know I've sort of flitted through all different sections of it. You know from rifleman for quite a long while I was a, a machine gunner on it, and nowadays I portray um, military foot police just as a as a little bit of a different avenue to what we do. Um, but yeah, I mean Great War Society. It's age of fourteen. I was I was one of the sort of original boy soldiers. Um, with a uniform that didn't really fit because we sort of chucked everything together. Um, basically fitted well. He put the string out in the middle of me, but it it became a lifestyle which, you know, all my mates were getting drunk in, uh, drunk in a local park. I was getting drunk in a medieval castle somewhere or um, uh, all the different all the different trips we've had. I mean, the, the Great Wall Society we've been to, uh, God, it was the 90th anniversary. We ended up going to Italy on the Piave, sort of going out there. Countless trips, obviously, with yourself over to uh, Zonabek with the the wonderful guys from SRD and the P- Passchendaele Museum, and you know from from the bar in in um, uh, the Tower of London, going to the Beefeater Bar whilst working at the Tower of London. Uh, we've done jo- uh, jobs for Sandhurst over the over the time, and it really has opened up from every little nook and cranny of the UK, from those tiny little village uh, village fates where you've got your bell tent. And um, all the local bits, and it is—it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to do, you know. And it's a good group of mates, and you sort of wander around. It could be the most massive event, big multi-period events, which we've we've attended to these tiny little, even down to doing ceremonies for. Um, we have re- done reburials over in France and Belgium uh, in in uniform, just to remember those that we do this for, really. And I think that's one of the good things about being part of a group like the great war society because it does open so many doors um you know that you know in average life or or should say oh no if you're in another group that isn't quite of the standard of the likes of the great war society 
you just wouldn't get those opportunities and they are very unique ones um you know like you said um you know we ended up marching through the streets of brussels uh for the king and queen of the belgians and uh you know you just wouldn't think that you'd ever do something like that um but the great war society i believe you'll 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 correct me if i'm wrong the great war society that's that was basically the original living history group of the First World War, wasn't it? It it was. It was almost like a, um, I don't know, like a Saxon horde which sort of spent, spent sent all its children over to the Five Corners. Um, nineteen eighty four. If anyone's listening, I think it was yeah, it was nineteen eighty four. They were first produced, and like all good, um, like all good stories, it started in a pub. Basically, the um, the chaps all belonged to um, the Sealed Knot English Civil War Society. A couple of guys had some German kit. A couple of guys had some British kit. Back in those days in the 80s, you could go down to um, Silverman's in London and go and pick yourself up a, a full set of 1908 webbing for fractions of what it would cost now for just one piece. Um, and, yeah, the guys would go and get these 22-pattern tunics. They started doing events here, there and everywhere, and I believe our premier event was either Tilbury or Dover Castle. Um, and it just spiralled from there, and then... There's several different units that over the years members have have joined and then gone off and formed their own the the, the different units, different strands of people we have. Um, we've got bit you know we've got bigger over the years and there's you know we we do try and um, yeah people leap, leapfrog of us we and you you do you build up this network, but I do believe yes we were the, the we were the the premier Great War Society group even before I was born you know it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, and and with that, most of when I, when I started doing First World War, there was only like a a handful of groups. You literally had like the Great War Society, uh, the Rifles Living History Society, who I became a member of, and the Tenth Essex. Now, if I I know that the Rifles Living History Society that basically came from the Great War Society because Lawrence Taylor, who runs the uh, group. He came from the Great War Society, and I believe the Tenth Essex came from the Great War Society, if I remember right. I'm not sure about the West Kents because the West Kents were about at that time as well. I don't know if they came from the Great War Society or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think who I know in the West Kents. I mean, uh, Mr. Bristow, uh, we we did some work with him um, many years ago. I don't think the West I don't think the West Kents came off the back of us. Certainly, the um, we used to have the Manchester Regiment part of the Great War Society, and I believe they they went on to form their own unit, which then subsequently. Oh no, no, sorry, I'm, I'm also thinking about the the Birmingham Powers and the and the um, the Warwicks. But I think the Birmingham Powers were an original, the original unit, and then the, the Warwicks came off the back of them. Um, the Buffs, I. Yeah, I just I think yeah they were they were a standalone unit. We've done I've done some some work with them over the years. Um, as for the the rifles, they were when they first formed them were part of the Great War Society. It was the the Isle of Wight Rifles, this little band of four or five blokes who would get the ferry across, um, portraying the obviously Isle of Wight Rifle Regiment and uh, Mr. Taylor, Sergeant Taylor, who you know he, and he lives about three or four minutes away from himself. You know we both. Um, volunteer down the Royal Gunpowder Mills, and we'd both um, he'd be doing his his black button stuff. I'd be doing my Middlesex stuff, heavy and light infantry. 
Uh, and of course, when we started doing it, his his dad, who's a eighth army vet, would come down, and I'd sit there and listen to all his tales of North and various things like that. And it's is an interwoven um, pattern, lovely framework to have, which you can show off centuries of history, a bit like a bit like yourselves at um, you know, the, the, your Living History UK festival, just showing that bit from um, flintlock to you know automatic weapon. Absolutely amazing work. Well, thank you very much, mate. That's uh, that map. That's uh, that means a lot. That does the because the um, yeah, because it was great when Lawrence's dad was still alive. Like you said, he was an eighth army veteran in the rifle brigade. Yeah, you, you could just sort of sit there and listen to him for for hours, mm-hmm. um, going on about his time in North Africa and Italy. I, I'm really glad that they managed to get the book written um, about his experiences during the war. So uh, yeah, so for those of you out there, it's a quick quick plug. <laughs> we brought it up. Um, a battle too far. Um, that's all about uh, Lawrence's dad and uh, his time through the Battle of North Africa in Italy, and it's available on Amazon. But uh, yeah, fan- fascinating bloke. And uh, and half the stories didn't even make it to the final edit of the uh, of the actual book itself. But uh, no, I, I mean I've. For, for quite a young, you know, from my younger years, sort of, you know, 15, 16, every weekend we'd be down down there. And I mean, it's one of those amazing things. I'm, I'm so, so glad I've had the opportunity throughout the years to to meet these veterans. And obviously in our in our lifetime, the, the last of Second World War vets will go. But I've I've seen the last of the First World War vets go, and that's all thanks to being within living history. I mean, um, Lawrence's dad, as you say, there were there were thousands of little stories, these little anecdotes that you'd you'd have throughout the years. Um, and I mean, I had the 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 honour of meeting um, Smiler Marshall, the last um, cavalryman. Sorry, well, he was Essex Yeomanry of the First World War. We went to this this tiny little village um, just outside London because his um, his carer approached us and said, "Oh, would you like to meet Smiler?" And to see this this old uh, this old man who was I think he was about one hundred and two at the time. We walked through the door in full First World War regalia, um, and very, very humbled we were. And walked through. He looked up with his one good eye, and he looked at us. Said, "Oh, you're in your Sunday best there." And he'd, you know, he was in the in his twilight years and very, very, very quiet. But you could see that um, there was a little bit of a spark, which he'd keep looking up every so often. Um, we also had the, the I had the honour of meeting Harry Patch twice, the last uh, life-serving um, veteran of the trenches, and that that was a life that was a life-changing moment. I was about sixteen at the time, and he'd uh, you see these these talking head programs, you'll see quite a lot of um, of Harry chatting, and he's got um, he goes into and I mean I know I know personally being a tour guide, you have this, you have the, the tape player mode. Where you talk about the same four stories over and over again, it becomes very melonic, and you just, 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 um, he's not particularly interested. But we sat there with Harry in the care home in Wells. We did a parade for him, um, and he came out of his care home and he actually stood up, um, which his, his nurses nearly ran, ran over to him. I think he was, he was, ne- he was nearly pushing 100 back then. And he just said, No, I want to walk. And he walked past every single one of us whilst we did present arms for him and he looked us up and down and that was one of the most life-changing moments. But you'd speak to him and he'd have his tape player mode talking about his, his three months at Passchendaele because we've got to remember that his war was only three months 
Um, but then you spoke to him and asked him about what he did after the war, or so what he did during the Second World War and what he did in the rest of his life. And this this hundred and hundred and something or other man turned to nineteen years old again. He would chat to you clear as day, speaking about his life in Wales, how he'd been a fireman during the Second World War, how he'd worked for the local university, and um how he sort of, you know, I, I God, I remember once the first time I met him, he had one girlfriend who was um I think she was about 90, 90 93, uh, and then we went back there the next time, and he had a, had a younger model. Um, so he'd, um, I think he was basically working his way around the care home because they kept dying. But um, no, I mean Harry Patch, an amazing, amazing chap. We we also met the last uh, last um, naval veterans, Bill Stone and Henry Allingham, the last RAF, sorry, last last airman because I think he was naval, naval naval reserve. So meeting the veterans of the First World War, seeing them pass, and it gives me that inspiration to um to carry on the story really because now we have no no people to witness it as our job as first of all living historians is to pass on that torch and pass on the uh the story so we can tell these generation these these people these things for generations to come that's the important thing about um living history yeah, I agree, and that is, I'd say, is the most important part part of being a living historian is that you are there as the as the as the storyteller, really, and that's great that you managed to meet so many of like the last of the First World War veterans. So I, I, unfortunately, I never got to meet any of them, unfortunately. Um, but like yourself, I was in, I've been in that fortunate position to meet countless world war ii veterans from various branches of the services um but i really wanted to meet a first world war veteran but never never well it just never it just never happened unfortunately Mm. um although which really really did annoy me um i didn't know about this until the he hit the front line uh, front page of my local paper arthur alstrap he literally lived five miles away from me. So the care, yeah, the care home that he lived in was five miles away from my town. And I was like, he's lived there for years and years and years. And I never knew. No one ever mentioned it or anything like that. And I was I was like, oh, well, that, well never, never going to speak to him then. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, we talk about the, the opportunities we've had. I mean... Um... I did this. I did this completely, uh, completely wrong. I mean, I, uh, I started off in the Great War Society, and normally it would be if you were a part of the emergency services, you you know you do get a lot of people who are either emergency services or serving soldiers, ex-serving soldiers that do it. Um, joined at the you know joined doing this at the age of fourteen, and eventually moved my way into the um, into the emergency services that I still you know work for today. But prior to that, all the opportunities i've had through this i mean yes we you know, get to meet veterans we go to these um these wonderful venues you see the whole behind the scenes sort of thing but once you've packed your tent away and put your kit away it's given me the drive and the the opportunities to basically just not make the hobby a job but work, make the hobby work for us because obviously um we've done quite a lot of film work over the years which um, you know we've done some you know, not not major blockbusters and things like that, but you know the the idea of having a a, a living historian or reenactor is you don't have to train us because we already know 
all the commands and various things like that. We've always got the equipment. You don't need to bring an armourer in. So it's it, it's more economical for these film companies to bring us in. So most of my kit all was paid for by doing film work because luckily enough, um, I came in just before 2004, so the 90th anniversaries. There's loads of documentaries going on there and we'd go and do these these major major productions here, there and everywhere. Um, thanks to the blokes from Battle for Europe and Dickie Bass, so I did a couple of little extra bits of film work here, there and everywhere. I managed to um, uh, start doing genealogy. Um, if any of you follow Beat to Battlefield the um, on my TikTok, um, I do actually, you know, I, I've researched Soldiers of the First World War uh, completely free of charge just to give that pe- give people that little bit of closure if they had to. I've been doing that for nearly, well, researching Soldiers of the First World War for nearly 20 years and it's even though you go off to, to work, you have a life and things like that, it's something that always sort of creeps back creeps back with you. Um, and then also the opportunities we've sort of had, of, you know, the, the battlefield touring um, was something that I started, I started doing um, just because people go, oh, you're interested in the First War. I've always wanted to go to Eep. And Eep, for those who those are listening, please, please, if you ever get a chance, go just go to Eep once and it will get you hooked. Because it's not if it were you know if even if the First World War stuff wasn't there, it's still a beautiful city, and I've had I've had the the privilege of of living there for a couple of seasons, doing tour guiding and not even doing tour guiding, just basically lounging around. But that's all thanks to this this love of the First World War, and as living historians, I mean you'll you'll find if those who who aren't aren't living historians. You'll find every person has got their um, their own little niche market when it comes to uh, to um, to uh, living history. You'll have someone who is interested in lamps, who can tell you about every single lamp. And then people who are interested might have an interest in bombing, so they'll have every single grenade known to mankind. And it's a it's an absolute melting pot of people's general interests. And I think the I think one of the um, one of the things we we keep saying about living history and reenacting, you could read a um, hundred books about soldiers of the First World War until you've put that equipment on and you see the things that are rubbed. I mean, we in two thousand and four we did the the Mons March, uh, walking from Mons to Le Cateau, wearing and just living as the soldiers did, um, and you learnt what rubbed, what the soldiers would have got rid of. At the end of the day, and then I think back to Passchendaele '90, when we lived at uh, Valo Farm near Passchendaele for nearly two weeks, digging, uh, digging latrines, and you know, living off the kitchen. Because the thing is, with the, with the Great Royal Society, we have the the added bonus: we have a field kitchen, we have a water bowser. Every person knows their individual job, what they're going to be doing, especially like Mons 100. Um, I'd, I'd been doing a battlefield tour for nearly two weeks, so I'd only come over with very basic kit. I worked in the kitchen for, for, for four days and just, I was a slop jockey. And, you know, it's it's having, everyone has their own individual role, their own individual job. Um, it does sort of sound like playing soldiers, but it's it's the teamwork which makes the teamwork that makes the dream work. Yes, it's a bit of corporate there. But um, I think it's a... Well, yeah, I think I've I've, I've sort of witted on being great living history. It's one of those one of those things that's given me confidence and other um, other avenues. And once you get to know people, especially like yourself, self, self, uh, self Pete on the uh, 
on the circuit, you you build those bonds with people, and it's it's friendships that will uh, last a lifetime. Oh, it absolutely will, and that is like you say, it's it's a great thing when you got all these people that have like their very specific interests. Like I've got my sort of specific interests. Like mine's basically the life life of the soldier. That's what my interest is. And then when it comes to the First World War. I'm really interested in the cooking side of things. Actually, what what what, what were they actually eating? Um, and I, you know, and quite quickly when I got into it, they weren't just eating bully beef and biscuits. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, that's that's how I got hooked. So you mentioned about you know going over to Eeps and getting you know it could hook you into the world of living history, and that's what it did for me. I've I'd always had an interest in the First World War, and I had then I I ended up going over there in when was it? It was I mean like two thousand and nine, ten, I think it no no, might have been two thousand eleven, it might have been. And I, I ended up going over there and just from being there for a long weekend, that's what then gave me the enthusiasm to say, Yeah. They, their their story needs to be told, and that's and then literally the year after that, I found Lawrence and joined the uh, Rifles Living History Society, um, doing First World War, and that's 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 what got me my hook into the First World War. And like you, it sent me on a on a journey in loads of different directions regarding the First World War and things. Like that. And like yourself, I've ended up giving tours over in heaps as well. Um, just stuff I just don't really think I'd ever ever end up doing, to be honest. And then making TikTok videos about feeding the British soldier during the First World War. So it's it is literally just a wild train where you just don't know what's going to happen next. It it does. I mean, my um my tour guiding career. I basically I specialise in uh, in youth groups because being a scout leader. Um, I've got countless groups because I, I did a did a week week long camp because basically Eve itself um, it's a beautiful place to be it's a safe secure place and you have got quite a lot of you got a lot of stuff on your doorstep um, you can get a bus to Depana which is which actually was the centre of uh, uh, the British HQ for um, the Dunkirk evacuations that's my that's the, about basically all I say about the um, that when I take the kids there but it's beautiful beaches. There's theme parks, water parks there, so you can you can do a mixture. Because if you if I took a if I took a group um sort of fourteen to eighteen year olds on an eight day battlefield tour, we'd all be massively depressed by the end of it. Um, it all stems from many years ago. I went on a, an Anglia battlefield tour, which was a day trip from London, leaving at Sparrows Far o'clock, uh, getting over there, running around the battlefield, stuff that I'd already seen. God knows how many times, absolutely knackered. Do the last post ceremony, get jump on the bus, come back. So I, I wanted to create a tour which would let allow young people to enjoy the area, but also have you know take in the uh, the local bits of the battlefield. And that's the eight day tours we've done. We do do we do do shorter ones for weekends for for young people, and I do do adult tours as well. Um, I've had some countless people over the years go, oh, so do do adult tours? Well, yeah, I do. I can I I can, I can elaborate. I'm not just doing not my big book of the first world war um but yeah now we've uh that started off with one camp for my uh my unit and then by the next year i have two units um approach me oh could you do this 
And then I think in 2014, we ended up having eight units, nearly 150 kids coming over to the battlefields. I drew up my, um, my old, my older scouts who came over as a crew. So one day I'd be doing the tour around the local area. We do cycle, you know, do cycle tours. We do bus tours. Um, whilst I'm doing them, they take the kids off to the theme park or take them to the beach for the day. So we had this rolling rotation of kids and it was just absolutely, absolutely splendid. That was 2014. And then over the years, uh, word of mouth, I've had groups approach me, oh, can you do this tour here? Can you do a tour there? And we just basically stuck around the area. We do go off to the Somme every so often, but Ypres is a, is a beautiful city. And I mean, if... Uh, if any young person goes out there, um, as long as they can take something away with them at the end of the week, even if it's just a, a box of chocolates from the from the square, hopefully it's a a memory which they will cherish, enjoy. And to be fair, for the years I've been doing it, I've still got uh, groups from my local. They're of that age; they start going drinking, and they'll suddenly say, "Oh, man, on your mark, you're the you're the tour guide from Eep." I went, "Yeah, yeah," and they'll they'll go, "Oh, I, I looked into this uh, my family tree." Um, You'd be amazed the amount of groups we have come over, where you'll you know you try and have to do a pre-read, you try and do give the you know ask for as much information as you can because I love doing a bespoke tour. Um, if someone's got a certain interest, take them to a certain spot. If they've got a relative over there, the amount of times you turn up on the like, might be the Friday night, they're all knackered. Oh, hang on, um, Steve, he's got a um, he's got a grandfather over here. Oh, for the love of God! And, you know, you're trying to incorporate that. I've had. Just this year alone, I've had two um, two young people who their families have never been to their graves, and we've been to the most wonderful, weird, and wonderful little fields in the middle of nowhere. And you can, I mean, especially with, with you, Pete, doing your um, your graveyards, the sort of the cemetery series at the moment. It's to read the cemeteries; they are like books. You can um, you can tell what's happened on a certain day, certain time, and one of the the joys I've had through TikTok is, I mean, I've just spent um, two weeks over in Belgium and uh, Belgium and France, um, not tour guiding at all, um, but just enjoying enjoying the local area, becoming a warden for Talbot House. If anyone ever gets a chance, if you have got a really, if you don't have to have a massive interest in uh, First World War, but um, you can be a warden at Talbot House, which was a a home for, so it was a, yeah, it was just basically a rest stop for soldiers. During the First World War, um, Tubby Clayton, an army chaplain, took over this building because there was no rest spot for the average soldier. And it's now a museum and hotel, and you can, you're can in, in, in amongst this living history. And for a week, I served teas and coffees, must have served about a 1,000 teas and coffees to locals, to people who have come over to the battlefields from all over the world, um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, and just to sit there with them and they tell their story. But having that added knowledge, you can try and elaborate and give them that extra bit of story. So um, if you ever get a chance, you go to Popperinger, just outside it, there's um, Lision Hook Cemetery, which contains the graves of nearly 11,000 men who died in the hospitals. And you have every member of the, um, every, every member of the empire there, more or less, um, and also other, other nations, Germans, French, Americans. And I had a day off whilst I was over there, and I just spent a day wandering around the cemetery because when you're a tour guide, you're so focused on getting those salient points, getting the, as much information through. Sometimes you haven't got that time to stand back and look. 
Yeah, I often find it rewarding taking youth groups because I've done a couple of youth groups over in Eeps, and it is quite a rewarding experience, especially when they've come over with very little knowledge of it or if they've only got the little bit of knowledge that they've taken from the nonsense that they tell them at school about the First World War. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember you, um, uh, on when you were saying about going to the cemeteries and then suddenly uh, one of the people on the tour turned around and go, oh, my great-granddad's in here. And you're like, well, what, why, why wasn't this mentioned beforehand? Um, I've had something similar, um, even one where there's been like cross wires as well. And that was at Essex Farm, because that's what reminded me. Um, mm. That was down Essex Farm, and uh, the group leader come up to me and went, oh, such and such, their uh, relative is in here. And uh, I went, oh, brilliant, okay. And they, they said, oh, yeah, he's buried over here. Uh, we looked at them, and they wanted to lay a reef as well. And uh, then another student come up and... Uh, Said, so, oh, I've got a relative that was killed during the first of war. And then they come up to me and he went, You won't believe this. There's two here with two relatives in the same cemetery on it. I'm like, No, you're joking. And he's like, Yeah, 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 yeah. I went, Brilliant. So they laid this reef, and the latter was the one that ended up laying the reef. The other one was uh, escorting it because I said it'd be great for the two of them to lay the reef together. Yeah. And then once the reef laying was done, I turned to the one that laid the reef. I went, so where, so what relative um, was it? And they, they go, oh, I think it's, it's my great uncle or something like that, or great, 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 great uncle. I went, all oh, right, so whereabouts they're buried? They went, oh, no, they're not buried here. I mean, we're not <laughs> buried here. Oh, no, no, they're buried at, they're buried at a place called um, somewhere. And I quickly looked at it on the Google Maps. It's down in the bloody some sector. And I'm like, yeah. how did they cross the wires on that? <laughs> <laughs> so it was like so the one that was stood next to you should have been the one that was laying the reef at the cemetery oh, <laughs> yeah, i mean I'm, I'm i'm mostly dealing with um like either like teachers or, or, or scout leaders and you do you, you've got someone who's having a conversation with you constantly going oh yeah yeah we've got a relative oh we'll be really interested be really great or we've got someone on the local war memorial um, yeah, we can, yeah, uh, can you get us the information? Oh, yeah, no, I'll sort it out. And they never do. And then you turn up that one day and um, I've had it where, yeah, we've, all the kids have, the kids are really, really wanting to see this one grave, this one person is, all right. And I mean, because we do, we do do trips where we do Eep and the Somme. Um, and there's always, you know, you, you, that part of the Western Front, you could, you can, you know, maybe, maybe an extra hour out of your way. Right, okay, give us the details. Uh running through running through the Commonwealth War Graves. Um and I go, have you have you actually seen where this bloke's buried? Uh, no, no, no. We just, just know his name and he's, he's he's there's a memorial in the park in in the park and in the church and I all right, okay. Uh he's actually on the Basra Memorial in Iraq. Oh <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, all, all for you. I'll I'll get myself, yeah, I don't, don't mind doing that somewhere somewhere I've never been, really want to go. But uh no, we won't be going there this weekend. Um yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you do. You get the fa family legends can be an absolute absolute joy or an absolute pain. No, oh, they can um what I think uh one of the most outstanding ones I've had is uh, there was a there was a young well, say young woman, Christ, she was she was in her nineties. 
and her her father, you know, she never met him. Um, and we we sat down with him with her with her daughter, who must have been in her seventies, and went through. Oh, he's so brave, you know. There's a photograph on the wall of her dad. Yes, uh, the absolute, um, you know, the apple of her eye. His medals are there, um, the death plaque and all. And um, he's a very brave man, very brave. You know, he he, he died on the Somme. Like, okay, all right. Um, well, I'll just take the details of the medals. Take the you know, and um. And yep, he's he's buried just behind the lines on the Somme. All right, okay. And luckily enough, I've managed to find his uh, his service record. And because uh, for those who don't know, your know, service records, two thirds of them were destroyed by bombing during the Second World War. So when you get a, a, a complete one, it's an absolute joy to read through, and it gives you all the their various information. But reading through this um, this record, we've got he's, he's a pre-war regular, um, and his service record. He's he's been in. Um, military prison about three or four times. He served hard labour for three months here, there and everywhere. And he actually dies of syphilis. And um, I'm looking at this thing, oh, Christ. So I've had to go back there, speak to the speak to his her daughter who's in her 70s, and go, right, this is this is what we've got. Um, if you want, I can I can just sort of skirt around this. I can t- give him like, the service record where he was, what he did, what he served, what he, he's done. And the daughters looked at looked about her grandfather and go, no, 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 we, you know, she's near her end. I think she better better learn the truth. So there I am, sat down in this little little front room, um, a cup of tea, a couple of biscuits. Um, old people always have the best biscuits. And um, she's, I've gone right. So this is your this is your father. He served here, there, that, this, that, the other. Um, and he 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 died of syphilis. And she just looks up and goes. Yeah, it sounds about right. And you know, you think I'm crying. I'm not going to have this ninety-year-old die of a heart attack. But, you know, it's um, but it, it can be. It can it can lead you down so as I say so, so many different avenues, so many different rabbit holes. Um, you know, you'll have people who are so um, you know, and it can it can be life shattering for them because they go, oh yeah, he died, he died here, died of this. He was a very brave man. He, or he died in action, and then you'll be at a cemetery miles behind the lines, and you'll go, "Well, no, he, he's died of wounds. Um, mm. He was actually, you know, he was wounded six months before, and he's died in, died in the field hospital." And it completely crushes them because they they go, "No, no, this is the family legend." But these legends, we don't have the you know, these are things that have passed down, diluted over the years. And yeah, and it's like so the information it is it is horrendous trying to track down a first world war source. So like my great 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 uncle who was killed at passchendaele i think i've mm. managed to over the years i've managed to get all the information i can to sort of tell his story but there's so many gaps in the story um so like mm. some of it sort of educated guesses as well um like i believe he was down in gallipoli um because i managed to track his battalion where they were going and the the, the only logical thing is that he went to Gallipoli, then come back to the UK, then got transferred to another battalion, being the 8th Yorks and Lanks, and then then getting killed up at the Battle of Menin Road. And then you got people like my great-great-grandfather, who I actually, funny enough, I only found out about eight months ago that he served in the First World War, because one of the relatives went, oh, you'll probably like this. This is a photograph of your great-great-grandfather. Um, he was in the... Uh, Who's he? Like Durham Light Infantry, 
and mm. I, and he and he and he and I and he's one of those blokes who lied about his age, but not because he was underage. It's because he was overage. He was fifty-two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all I've all I've managed to find um, about him was that he joined up when he was fifty-two, and the obituary in the uh, local paper at the time when he died in like nineteen like fifty-three or something like that, yeah. saying uh, he lived in. Uh, Bloxham Village all of his life, apart from the brief period of when he served in the British and when he served in the army during the First World War. That is it. So I have no <laughs> idea what battalion he was in or anything. We have no idea what, you know, what medals he had, if he had any, or if he just, yeah. you know, or he managed to, or they found him out and he ended up staying on home service for his entire army mm. career or, or, or what he did. The only thing I've got is a photograph and that little obituary saying, you know, the regiment he served in and that was it. <laughs> but that that little fragment can can sort of you know lead us lead to a, a completely you know different avenue really can't it? It could yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a little. Maybe that's something you'd be able to do with your expertise. Find out what he was actually doing because I've found I'll, out nothing. Let me do else or see what I can do. Um, you know it's and it, it, you do you have to you have to pick away at the coal face because. Um, like literally, so if you've if you've got the there's nearly sort of eighty thousand men who have no known grave, and you can within reason, um, you can research whereabouts they were at the time because we have access to the the trench maps and mm. even down to the burial records of blokes who day, died on the same day as them. You can find if you find a, a battlefield burial where, luckily enough, some chaps put his his number on his spoon or his boot or even his uh, he's got a letter in his pocket. You you can basically find someone within about a hundred meters of where they were, and it's uh, mm. you do you go to these cemeteries and you see. Um, I mean, especially on the Somme, there was there's all the blokes who got uh, got hit uh, hit for the um, the Newfoundland Regiment who mm. laid out there, and you find these tiny little cemeteries, with like five or six of these these unknown graves. But you know, you can sort of walk along that path where you knew where they they were at the time. Um, but even even burials, I mean. As we know, so we have got those little battlefield cemeteries, but those big congregation cemeteries, some of the graves could have come from about 30 miles away. Yeah. So people automatically think, oh, he died here. No, he, he died 30 miles up the road. Yeah. You know? Yeah, as so, so my great uncle, um, you know, like, well, I, it's, it's in the documentary. Um, mm. And it was all, all thanks to Rob Frush because I managed to find the document, the. Um, uh, What's the word? The um, excavation document that the yeah. uh, reinterment unit was using, and it actually put the grid reference to. So all those blokes on that line were all buried together in that one plot in the in their original battlefield cemetery, and yeah. on the side is the grid reference to where they found them. So all those mm. blokes in that line were all together, and I was like, "Well, First World War grid references are completely different." <laughs> <laughs> to modern day grid references and yeah. uh, suddenly I had that eureka moment i was like hang on a minute and like you were saying earlier about people that have who specialize and i was like hang on a minute rob thrush he loves first world war maps he'll know exactly <laughs> where this is and lo and behold pinged over the grid reference to him and he goes right i've now downed it I've narrowed it down to maps such and such such and such mm. and i've pinpointed him right here and it's literally uh a hundred meters away from the black watch memorial just on the corner of plug street oh right bloody hell 
Yeah, and that's where his yeah. original burial site was. So if you go to the Black Watch Memorial and mm. you look towards the German positions and you've got the the uh, motorway to your back. Yeah. Well, to your back, go about a hundred about 100, 100 meters to one hundred and fifty meters to your to your rear from that. Um, mm. that's where the that's where he was buried. Oh, blimey. Yeah. And that's where yeah, they took him up for and moved him up to Tyne Cot. But that, I mean, I, I've um, hats off to those those, those chaps of the Labour Corps who stayed behind and and did that sort of thing. Yeah, and there were volunteers as well. A lot of them yeah. were volunteers who, who decided they were going to stay and find the blokes and help clear up a bit. Go on, Bennett. Um, you, you just feel sorry for the National Serviceman that turns up who goes, right, I, I, we know it's all over, but, um, you know, you've got a bit of a job for you. <laughs> But that, I mean, those trench maps. So I, one of those things. I will will give a shout out to um, to Ben Ben Hall, who hopefully, if he, he's listening, he does follow you guys. He's a he's a chap in the buffs, but he's currently um, doing his army training up in Harrogate at the moment. But him, um, we t- I took him to, and that's the, the trench maps. If you go on to um, the Scottish Libraries, you can, um, and also thanks to Long Long Trail Scottish Libraries, these trench maps are available online, and you can do overlays. From there, but I took him to um, just near Irish um, Irish Farm Cemetery, and there's a, a bit of line which no one ever visits. Now, Ben, he was about 12, 13 years old. Had a lo- his mum brought him over. Had a love of the First World War, and we we took this trench map and we walked across three German lines. And I love, I absolutely love and adore field walking. Uh, it's what actually got my passion into it when I found my first rifle, and then ever ever since, you know, you find that bullet. I could have found a thousand bullets over over the past twenty years, but I still get excited when I find I find one. And we we looked at these trench maps, and he he could actually look and plan, and we'd find where the lines were because we as soon as you stepped on top of this trench on this map, you started to find bits of rusty metal. And it's I, I'm not I'm not condoning it. Please, and Earth, be a be a be a. I'm a professional nutter. Uh, is the end of the day. Don't pick it. Don't pick shells up off the ground. Um. We do lose, but there's people still being lost these today. There are still gas shells out there, um, and it's they are they are still dangerous. They're still losing three or four farmers a year. Um, up until recently, one one of the blokes from the EOD did uh, did pass away when he, he got blown up. So there are there is still a danger, and it's still a very very present um, present danger on the on the battlefields today. Yeah, and that's something I always uh, hammer into the youth groups when I do my tours over there. It's like you might see on the side, it might be just a rusty lump on the side of the road that looks like a shell, but that is still very, you know, that has the potential of still going off like. Yeah. But yes, I mean, it's going to take about 750 years to still clear it. Um, they're still finding 100 tonnes a year over there. Um, yeah. It is, I mean, we're still, we're, we are still recovering bodies. There's about 100 yeah, of those yeah. a year. Um, yeah, it's absolutely state. mad. Yeah. And it's uh, you know, you, do, you and it, it can be a different you know one one season there'll be nothing next season there's the plough goes there slightly a bit deeper and you 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 come up with loads of loads of bits and bobs um, yeah. yeah yeah so how so from doing these little tours so how did beat to battlefield become um, a manifestation like as an official uh, thing. No, I mean, oh, so many years ago, doing the job, doing the job that I do, um, I work for the police service. I'd um, 
I was thrown down a flight of stairs and I did my back in. And um, I'm part of my recovery, I started to research the uh, our, our war memorial. Um, and the plan was after my recovery, all, all after my recovery, um, I've been looked after by the great people of the uh, police treatment center. And uh, I studied this war memorial, and my plan was to we had 150 chaps who died during the first and second world war. Um, I think 140 of them were in within the area of sort of you know accessible between Belgium and France. So the idea was beat to battlefield, beat beat being what police officers do. And uh, I did a 250 mile cycle ride um, just to try and raise money for this um, for the uh, for the charity. Uh, and then when I was started doing this, that, and the other, I, I just kept that name of beat to battlefield because it's what we do. We, I did used to have a partner who'd uh, you know, they they were also in the police service, so it, it was one of those things just to bring it on. Uh, just you know, obviously bring the history of the police officers who served during the First World War because uh, nineteen fourteen it completely decimated the police service because most of them were guardsmen who'd uh, signed up for their seven years. First World War comes along, so they all leave the beat and go out to France and uh, the guards division got absolutely uh, absolutely annihilated in the first uh, first couple of months of the of the war um and yeah it just it's just it's it's not a uh, it's not a professional company or business or anything like that. it's just a just a hobby and a passion which has sort of carried on really we just use that that moniker and that name just so people know who we are um but yeah now, I'd always wondered why you'd named it beat to battlefield but now it makes complete sense no. I know, and it was staring at me in the face the entire time <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a boots walking across it um but yeah no it's uh it's just something that sort of um went from there i mean it's never never really snowballed and the past two years thanks to covid has been a we've uh with scout groups being on the decline or not having the numbers to come back we have um sort of a cut we've cut down a fair a fair old bit not sort of cut down but there hasn't been the the major interest it is Picking up, and hopefully next year with the 110th anniversary of the start of the war, we'll start to see youth groups come back. Um, you know, it's not the not the biggest money maker in the world or anything like that, but it does pay for me my beer and my chocolate and uh, maybe the odd, odd pouch of tobacco. But it's uh, certainly after sort of certainly the post COVID world. It really, you know, having not travelled for God knows how many uh, how many years, and I I've now sort of extended. Extended the the map uh, of of what we do, just because I fancy going places. So um, uh, about two months ago, I was in uh, Warsaw in Poland. Got a train out to Shagan, and I walked around the uh, Stalingrad Free, um, the great the Great Escape Camp, which is like a. I mean, Pete. I mean, we, we remember the days of watching. Um, the, there was always a war film on a Sunday afternoon, normally on Channel Four, and these great films that you'd sit there. And watch and take in. So, I've been to the place of the Great Escape. Um, I've also been to went to Leipzig, went to Dresden, and in between stayed in Colditz for the night. So, Colditz is now a uh, is now a youth hostel, um, which absolutely yeah, absolutely brilliant. Just trying to do these these sort of child these sort of childlike memories because now I've got the money and the, I can travel and do this sort of stuff. We do it. We also do um, we do tours to Auschwitz, which you know not the youngest not don't take the youngsters there, but. We try to put it into an absolute, you know, just the basic, basic bits. I can't actually tour guide now because you need to have, you need to have an official guide. But the people there have got the passion to do so. 
but also a lot bleeds me onto the TikTok thing because you know the TikTok has given me a bit of a not a platform, but it gives me a, a sort of chance to sort of people to hear my ramblings and all your sort of research. And you know, some things go well, some things don't. Um, I recently did a video about the uh, the British POWs who were Auschwitz at um, at the Buna Works, so at the IG Farben uh, factory. There was fifteen hundred uh, British POWs who were there at Auschwitz, the Auschwitz free number. You know, the third the third of the camp, a little while away. Um, I found out that twenty, no, sorry, yeah, it was twenty three of them um, got killed in a bombing raid in nineteen forty five. So went to uh, went to Krakow, the old cemetery, visited the graves there, went to their original burial just out, just in Auschwitz town itself. Went to their prison, prison of war, went to the prisoner of war camp in the footprint. Um, went to Poznan not too long ago and found out about you know how eleventh November for us is Remembrance Day. For eleventh November in Poland is their um, is their Independence Day because they they pushed the Germans out and they had a little war there. But in Poznan Garrison, you've got the fifty chaps, sorry, forty eight chaps from uh, the Great Escape. So went there one trip. Absolutely, if you ever get a chance to go to Poznan, it is full of military museums. And we're talking about these lovely little ones, which have got those wonderful little bits and bobs that you can just sort of, and you've got the smell, the smell of gun grease, the smell of, of old uniforms, absolutely amazing. But it's where the, the 50, the 48, sorry, the 48 blokes are buried from the, the, uh, the Great Escape, go on another trip, go and go to the actual spot where it all happened. And it's that hands-on sort of history, it's keeping that history alive and just giving a tangible thing from there. Uh, the Berlin trips we do because um, that's where my family comes from and I've got that passion for Berlin to wander around and if you get a chance you've got to do about four or five trips to Berlin because it's got so many different avenues we do um, an Arnhem and Anne Frank tour so we stay in um, um, stay just outside Arnhem you can do the walk yeah we, we do do that that major walk we go to the Hartenstein Hotel uh, walk through the streets because most of my tours I love love doing walking and cycling walking through those streets, learning about those individual little platoons uh, in Oosterbeek, and then walking up to the John Frost Bridge, standing on the bridge, and and going back, and then going to Amsterdam, doing the Resistance Museum there, going and see, go to Anne Frank's house. So we tried to do as many varied things, but um, I could waffle on about 101 tours I can do, but it's all down to those members of the public, and it's all from a, a little story. It's like from a, a little idea. Anyone who comes up and goes... I really fancy going there because um, tour guiding isn't just about knowing the information. It's about logistics. It's trying to find the best best way we can. And through um, being a scout leader and organising these trips, just trying to make it the most cost-effective way you can for those young people so you can get as many of them over there because obviously with a cost-of-living crisis, you want to give the most you can for these young people. So it's... You 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 can do the most amazing tour where we we dine out on steak every night, or if it's just uh, we've got a, 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 a hexy stove and some hot dogs at the side of the road, but we're we're learning on history. Sometimes it's the best best tours you can ever do. And I think you're going completely the right way about it as well. You know, it, it's like you said, it's it's all down to cost and and obviously the whole world falling on its ass like for the last two years has been made it absolutely ridiculous um for touring i don't i, I don't know because obviously you get over there a lot more than what i do i don't know if you've spoke to any of the guide like as in like the local guides if they've how much they've been struggling at all well i mean pre-covid um eep itself 90 percent of the tourism was english um and now it's gone down to there are um, most most of the tourists who get around there are either Dutch or um, or from the 
Antwerp and things like that. Um, they have they've definitely noticed a noticed a change and a swift in what we have. You no longer have the the large veteran groups going over. Um, you know, as you know, sort of legions all over the uh, the UK are sort of slowly shutting down bit by bit. Those the momentum that you'd have having like the annual trip of say a uh, a working man's club going over there, they're not going over there anymore. Um, school groups when I started doing this um, under the Tony Blair days. Um, yeah, you know, the government would pay for school groups to go over there, and that's that's long gone. Mm. Um, I think financially, the biggest cost people have now is the travel, the ferries, and the the Euro Tunnel have shot up oh, tenfold massively. And yeah, it's so I'm off, yeah, because I'm as you know, I'm when we spoke before we went, uh, before we started recording, I'm off to Eeps this weekend, and mm. that's. What was that about two hundred pound just from just yeah. from, just that's just to get there? That is that's yeah. obviously like accommodation or that. It's pretty standard pricing and that. But yeah, the uh, the channel ferry, uh, the channel tunnel, uh, but even like the ferry as well, because there's only like a ten or twenty pound difference now in the ticket price. It used to be a time where it used to be ferry was the cheapest chips option, and then Eurostar or Channel Tunnel. Um, would be like you know the high roller <laughs> way of getting there, but now it's like I say it's like ten or twenty pounds between them now. It, it it's and you're not really you know the service you don't you you're not you're getting you're not getting anything extra for it, and it's um it's a bit of a bind. I mean I'm um I don't drive, so what I tend to do is if I'm going on my own, um and lucky enough I work in central London, I can get a, a twenty five pound bus which will get you into um. You, know, you can either get a night bus or I'll get the first bus seven o'clock in the morning. I'll be in Eep by about three o'clock in the afternoon, and that bus will either drop me off at Ghent, Brussels, or uh, Bruges, and you just get a train across the country. So that's, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I try not to do it with uh, with large numbers of kids because it, it will completely annihilate them. But it, you've just got to find find ways of making things effective. I mean, the one of the only reasons I've been doing so much in uh, Eastern Europe so far is um, I can get a flight for. Forty pound return, and you're you're in amongst it, and it's just that something a little bit different. But pre-COVID, um, lucky enough, one of my one of my other guide friends, one of my other uh, scout leaders, uh, George, Mister George Bowhill, the man, the legend. Um, he uh, his parents, you know, he had a gap year over there, so I'd literally jump on the coach after work. We'd have uh, all my rest days spent. I nearly lived in Eat for a, for a year, just you know, going to to and from his house. And he, it it doesn't cost you the earth to to get over there, and it's we we are lucky enough we have got that sort of that transport and that travel. But definitely from a a wholesale point of view, from getting a coach onto a ferry, it some some cases it's gone up an extra twelve hundred quid. Which if you can fill a coach up, is brilliant. Um, however, if you've got a um, a minibus with you know, local minibus from your local pool, you'll still be getting charged the same, which completely, you know, you're looking at an extra £100 per head per, per person, which people haven't got the haven't got the funds to do so. It's a bit of a bit of a bind, really. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, well, I can't see the prices going down any time soon, to be honest. But yeah, it's, you know, it, it, in that respect, it, that is... What I think is really just crippling in it is those prices of getting over there. You know, if it, mm. if we're back on the old school prices, then um, I don't think there'd be 
that much of a problem but yeah it's just absolutely ridiculous and like you're only going across like 20 miles of water as well <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I, I laugh to myself like when i like the last few times i've booked me tickets to go over there and i've like sat there and thought to myself i thought if i didn't love eeps that much i could go to like benedorm for four days for the <laughs> what I'm paying to go over there, <laughs> and it's yeah, just. But I, I'm, you, you've got to admit the the quality of the beer is a lot better in in Eat than it is in Benidorm. Um, it is, yeah, uh, and the and the people are nicer. Oh yes, <laughs> and, it, and it's a lot, and it's just well, everything better. Everything's better in Eats. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and yeah, you'll you'll know that you go back there time and time again. There's the same friendly people, um, and they they have been since. I mean, I think the first first official battlefield tour that went to went to that sector was 1916, and uh, other than, oh, even even during the Second World War, there were still people doing battlefield tours from the the other side. Um, but I think COVID was the only two years there there wasn't wasn't the wasn't people on the on the on the battlefields. Um, was there really a tour in 1916? Yep, there were people coming out to the front to see see those sort of things. Um, Thomas Cook did their first commercial one in 1918, but there are yeah, there are tales of people going over to the front, um, even especially uh, Poppering because of the large large hospital around there. People were getting over there, and, and unlike today, you could get a, you could get a train from um, Calais or Dunkirk, and it would get you to the Poppering area. Um, sadly, that's that shut down in the 1950s. Otherwise, mm. getting over there would have been just far much more easier. Oh, yeah. um, I never yeah. knew that. I never knew. I knew, I knew they, you know, started doing the tours like literally just after the war, but not like yeah. in 1916 where people are just sort of like rocking up to have a look. <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? You know, oh, yeah, that's this. mad. Yeah, it. Uh, I'm and um, oh god, I wish I wish I remember the name of the book. One of my friends has just just written about the. Um, you know, basically Eep coming out of the um, um, out of the like a phoenix out of the ashes, but Eep itself has been a has been a tourist destination for English tourists all the way back to the bloody um, the cotton trade. Uh, for those for those who are interested in the drawing of cloth, uh, Eep has a large cloth hall, which every three years they they throw cats off the top of it, and that's a story for for another day. Eep is um, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, they love the great. cats. The festival of the cats. They're cuddly cats uh, now. Before before we start getting complaints, they're cuddly yes, cats exactly. now. <laughs> they are paper mache cats at the moment. Now they didn't used to be, but um, yeah, even uh, I mean, Eep is a Eep is a oh, it's an, it's an amazing city, uh, medieval city that's only 110 years old. But you can rock up there on a Saturday Saturday evening. They're putting a the stage up. They'll have a huge music festival or Halloween festival, Christmas festival, Santa Claus coming out. Um, amazing parties till three or three, four o'clock in the morning. Um, that's when you're sort of stumbling out the bars, and you'll be walking around the square a couple of hours later, getting ready to go out and do your tour at seven, and it's completely cleared away. They have the most random, random times. Those those crazy Flemish people absolutely, absolutely love them. Oh, yeah, they're very um, efficient on their cleanups whenever oh, there's events in the square. They are but, very efficient. I'll, I'll tell you what. I mean, you probably noticed you can do the most amazing tour known to mankind, uh, and people will just go. God, it's so clean here, isn't it? Oh my god! You know, it's it's it's, it's the cultural yeah. things. I mean, um, it is. Yeah, I, I I did a tour for a, a, a British school from Dubai. Um, you know, they were, I didn't get I didn't get mega money from them, but it was you know it's like amazing for them to come over and, and do this. And they did a, a full three week tour 
of England, France, Germany, and did all, and all other other stuff like that. But they came to us in Belgium. Um, I, there, I, there I am, you know, just trying to, you know, to, not <laughs> trying to do my my passion. And they were more interested in dandelions because they, they had never seen them before. Um, so, yeah, I could have sold some dandelions to some people from Dubai. There you go. If, if anyone's got a business plan, send dandelions to Dubai. There we go. Uh, it's, um, yeah, uh, the amount of amount of stories and times I've I've I've, I've had in that city. Um, and you in, you yourself. And, you know, we have got you know, sort of mutual friends like the uh, Patrick or... Uh, or Rasputin, the sort of uh, the the bookshop, which if any of you ever want to and you, know, you lose yourself in a in a pile of books and or rusty bits, um, next to St George's Chapel, one of our one of our friends has got a a teeny tiny little bar which uh, is floor to ceiling in old First World War books. Um, the bar bar and bottles <laughs> and bottles. <laughs> a random a random old bottles. Um, one of one of my one of the things I did buy from there once was a was an SS condom because um, they they, they the, the SS had their own own, <laughs> own own set of condoms which they would uh, which they pre, you know which they obviously have to carry carry for for for, for the fatherland um, but yeah he had, he had random stuff like that um, the old Bill pub we've got to give a shout out to Natalie who has looked the after best pub, the best pub in Wipers. Best pub and wipers. Um, it's an English pub in the middle middle of the town. It's not as just tacking Gordy, but Natalie, she works there on her own. You know, she's looked after it for the past seven years. Um, just drop in, have a drink, say that Pete Pete Neal or uh, Martin Lambert's been there, and she'll give you. You know, she'll 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 look after you. It is it is a place of safety that we love. In Eep, other bars are available, um, but the food, even the food, absolutely absolutely tip top, amazing. Um, from the most finest gourmet meal down to a Bicky burger, which um, a Bicky burger is a local delicacy, and it's about fifteen percent horse. But yeah, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, and a uh, and you can get your food delivered to you by a robotic cat as well if you go to the sushi exactly. Yeah, if you go, you go to the sushi <laughs> restaurant, all you can eat sushi. And yes, yeah. oh, oh, I could. We could we, we could we could chortle on about you know the weird and the wonderful world of, of, of battlefield touring and it's yeah um it's an amazing it is I mean I I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it um it's not about the money it's it's about being somewhere that you love and have the passion to go to time and time again um I do I do remember a, a, a recent partner she goes why don't you keep going back there. Because it's just nice. The people are nice, yeah. and they just couldn't. They just couldn't understand it. Yeah. yeah, and 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 also you've got the battlefields right next door to it as well. So everything's a winner. <laughs> but those those people over the years that you you've met on the you know that you meet on the battlefields and um you know there's there's the uh, the, the the wonderful museum at Hooge. Um, Nick and his wife have have done untold amazing things to that area. Um, that's a real. A real visit, visit place to visit. Uh, Polygon Wood, um, Johans, who is oh, his yeah. passion. That's a little his, hidden gem. That is. That is. It's a wonderful private museum, but also he he, um, he excavated two a uh, uh, sorry five bodies, and he's had a memorial built to the Brothers in Arms Memorial. That is, and you do. I mean, you you find these little gems every time you go out there. There's a new something new seems to pop up every so often. Um, yeah, it's an amazing. Just, just go to Eep, an amazing place. You don't need a tour guide. Get yourself any number of untold books and just go over there and experience and enjoy. And I think that rounds this episode up very nicely, Mark. 
Mark, yeah. thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. And if you out there listening, if you're part of a youth group or, you know, you want to have a good quality Battlefield tour, then look up Beat for Battlefields. They're on Facebook. Beat 2 will... Battlefield. Sorry? Beat 2 Battlefield, not Beat 4. That's the that's the return. That's the the worst one in the saga. Beat 4 Battlefield wasn't particularly good. Beat 2 Battlefield, though, does oh, work. Oh, Beat 2, sorry. Yeah, Beat... Oh, <laughs> good job you corrected me. I'll be sending everyone in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> beat to Battlefield. Um, they're on Facebook, and we will leave a web address in the description below. And so if you want a good quality battlefield tour, Martin is your man. And just not, don't have to see us just for battlefield tours. If you have, if you do want to research anyone for the first second world war, and say do it completely free of charge and hopefully it can give you a little bit of closure. And there we go. Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate, having you on. And I could sit here chatting for ages and ages and ages, but I think our <laughs> listeners' ears will start getting tired after a while. We'll have to carry this on over a beer some sometime, mate, you know. We will, mate. <laughs> yeah, we will. Hopefully, maybe in wipers sometime as well. Happy days, mate. Happy days. Happy days. All right, mate, you be lucky and take and care. And you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider uh, clicking onto our Patreon where you could sponsor us for as little as £1 a month. And until next time, stay safe and keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.